your Bibles to 2 Timothy as we start a new study of a new epistle this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. We'll be studying the first seven verses this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are the great I am. You're the ultimate authority, majesty, your beauty, your wonder, your grace, your mercy, your peace. We're here to meet with you, and we pray that you would bless this time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to think of two things, and they just happen to both start with C, and it's cookies and concrete. And you're saying, what in the world do cookies have to do with concrete? Well, sometimes your cookies turn out like concrete, don't they? But both cookies and concrete have to be mixed up. You can have all the ingredients there. You can have your chocolate chip cookies. Everything's in the bowl. But if you don't mix it up, you're not going to have chocolate chip cookies. If you've ever made chocolate chip cookies and you don't fully melt the butter and you try to mix it up, it's not the same gooey lusciousness as if you melt the butter and then you put it in the mix. Hey, this sounds like a pretty good activity for a Sunday afternoon, doesn't it? Concrete. Concrete's got to be one of the wonders of the world. When you stop and think about how many things are made out of concrete and the chemical process, and concrete's the same way. You can have all the ingredients in the bag, but until you get it out of the bag, you put the water with it, and whether you mix it by hand or it's a big concrete mixing truck, it needs to be mixed up. And that's the challenge for Timothy in these first seven verses is he needs to mix it up. All the ingredients are there. In his life, God has given him these spiritual gifts, but they have become dormant, and so now's the time where he needs to stir those gifts within him. And maybe that's the case for you this morning, for me this morning. There's something that the Lord has graciously given to us that needs to be stirred up. Whenever we start a new book, I like to try to give a little bit of background. And if you studied with us from 1 Timothy, you'll be familiar as we go into 2 Timothy. Things have changed for Paul. He's coming to the end of his life. He's in prison in Rome. Most believe that he's in a dungeon. This is not a comfortable prison. He is looking at execution. He knows that he's going to be martyred. And indeed, Paul did die for his faith in Christ Jesus. Timothy's on his heart. Timothy's on his mind. And he begins to write to Timothy, expressing his love for Timothy. These are the last words of the Apostle Paul. First Timothy was the prescription to a healthy church. How does Timothy lead a healthy church? But now this is a much more personal letter in 2 Timothy. Reflect maybe on a last conversation that you've had with a loved one. Maybe it was your mom. Maybe it was your dad. You knew they were passing away. And in that moment, this is the last time you're going to communicate with them. Think maybe of a a husband where he knows he's passing away and he looks into the eyes of his wife and the eyes of his kids and says, this is what's on my heart and mind. Sometimes today with how easy it is to make a video and if a dad knows that he's got small children that he's not going to be able to see grow up, he'll, he'll shoot a video and he'll say, these are some things that are important. These are some things as you grow up that you need to, to keep in mind and I want you to know that I love you. It's that kind of letter that we get from Paul to Timothy. It's one of my favorite letters personally. I know that I say that about every book of the Bible, but this is the book of the month for me at least, so... Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 1. Paul, let's stop there for just a moment. The Apostle Paul. If you are new to this study and you're new to RMC, let's get a little bit of 
a background on Paul. Paul was Saul, and he was the persecutor of the church. He did everything in his power to be able to arrest and kill Christians, but yet God pursued him and called him by name. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Jesus told him. Knocked him off of his high horse. He became saved. He became the child of God. He radically followed Jesus Christ, asking this question, Lord, what would you have me to do? He never stopped asking that question. A life surrendered to Jesus Christ. He became from persecutor to pastor. As you have relationships, is there a Saul in your life that you can't picture coming to know Christ as their Savior? Maybe even this morning as you're here in church, you have an antagonistic heart toward, towards Christ. God can take the hardest of heart and bring him to salvation. Paul's life is an example of the redemptive and transforming work of the power of God. He writes an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. As he is ending his life, he knows he's in God's will. He knows he's spending his days the way that God would want him to. Life is short, so invest it wisely, right? You've only got one shot at it. And on this cold, foggy March morning, can you say, I'm in the will of God? Paul's not perfect, we're not perfect, but do you have that peace that you're investing your life in God's will? According to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus, in the dungeon would be a time that you would think you'd be focusing upon death, but instead, Paul's focusing on life. He says, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. There's an application here for us this morning. Do you find yourself in a dungeon-like experience? It's your job, it's your boss, it's a difficult family situation, something that you wouldn't talk about very openly, but you're in a very challenging and difficult marriage. Maybe there's some difficult things with one of your children. Maybe you're single and that brings some unique challenges in your life. You have a dungeon that you want to get away from. How do you respond to it? Paul's in the worst of dungeons and he's focusing on the promise of life in Christ Jesus. There's eternal life in Christ, but there's also abundant life here and now. The life of Christ is to impact us this morning, something that we're enjoying, something that's fulfilling and satisfying our soul. In John 17, verse 3, it says, and this is eternal life, that, you, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Eternal life is that you would know Jesus Christ. For all of eternity, we're getting more and more personal knowledge about Jesus Christ. So why not enjoy that journey now? Why not say, this is life. There's life in Christ Jesus for us to live as Christ and to die as gain. And the life of Christ can be enjoyed and experienced in all circumstances. Amen? Amen? We go into verse two. To Timothy, a beloved son. This is who's receiving the letter. We know that Timothy is timid. He's dealing with being afraid. We also know he has health problems. Paul told him he had to drink some wine for his stomach's sake, drink a little bit of wine for his stomach's sake. He's young probably somewhere in, in his 30s as he was pastoring, and culturally that wasn't accepted for a young man to, to be pastoring. Timothy is someone that we can relate with. Paul tends to be someone that we respect and can maybe put up on a pedestal wrongly, but Timothy's someone that we can relate to with because he's approachable. And here Paul says, you're a beloved son. You're a beloved son. In 1 Timothy, it was a true son in the faith, but here in this last letter of Paul, he says, Timothy, you're my boy. I love you. 
Jesus expressed his love to his disciples. He told them, he showed them in his actions and in his words. If you have a son or daughter in the faith, express it to them. Hey, I I love you. You're beloved. You're, you're, You're loved by me. And that would have been an encouragement to Timothy. These three words, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Triple blessing. It was the same blessing that was given in 1 Timothy. Paul doesn't mind repeating himself when it comes to the blessing of God. Do you ever get tired of receiving grace, mercy, and peace from God? Grace is to the undeserving. Mercy is to the helpless. Peace is to the restless. Maybe you just can't seem to find peace this morning. There's a situation on your heart and your mind, and you need the peace of God. Maybe you feel helpless. You need the mercy of God. Maybe you feel like you failed this week, and you need the grace of God. You're in the right place. See, Jesus is the source of grace, mercy, and peace. The Father is the source of grace and mercy and peace. If you like to study the Pauline epistles, you'll notice that it's only when Paul is writing to Timothy and Titus that he includes mercy. The closer you are to someone in relationship, if you're gonna have sons in the faith and fathers in the faith, there's gonna need to be mercy. Paul got to know Timothy's weaknesses and he was able to express and give mercy. Verse three, I thank God. Now, if you were writing in a dungeon, and you'll have to bear with me on my voice this morning, I swear I'm not going through puberty. That happened a while ago. (laughs) If you were in a dungeon, what would your letter look like that's going to a close friend? Oh, please pray for me. I'm dying in here. This is terrible. Get everybody rallying around me that I could get out of this dungeon. I could get out of this, this prison. You'll never believe the guards. You'll never believe the beating that I took last night. I'm waiting any day for them to come in and execute me. You couldn't fault anybody for writing that. But what does Paul write? He says, I thank God. I'm thankful in the midst of this suffering that I'm going through. I listened to a teaching this week on the radio by Chick, or not Chick, it was Chip, Chip Ingram. Anybody ever heard Chip Ingram before? Yeah, I really enjoy his teachings, very practical. And he was saying in his life, he noticed that he wasn't very thankful. So over a two-year process, he really worked on it. And how he worked on being more thankful was slowing down. So when he was at the grocery store, he would intentionally go in the longest line. Because normally, he'd be fighting for the shortest line to get through there fast because he was busy, we're we're busy people. He says, I want to be a thankful person, not necessarily a busy person, take the longest line and he would just start to thank the Lord. He would drive the long way to work, get to work early, stop and get a cup of coffee on the way to work. Are you so busy that you've got to go about 70 miles on Academy Boulevard to get to work? We're always running at such a, a high octane. That doesn't produce a thankful life. It produces a very stressful life. It's very practical advice. Take some more time. Drive the long way to work. Get a cup of coffee. Sit in the parking lot before you go in and just thank God for who he is and what he's done and the blessings he's provided in his life. 
Apparently, Chip Ingram lives close to the, the coast, and he couldn't remember the last time that he'd been to the beach. He lived like a half a mile from the beach. So he decided on Sunday mornings, before he went and taught God's word, he was just going to go park at the beach and thank God for the beauty as the waves came in. Well, church, we happen to live really close to the mountains, and when was the last time you've been in the mountains, that you've gotten out of the city and drove up into the mountains. I was teasing with and messing with the staff here at the church saying, if you've never been to Mueller State Park, you need to go. It's only 45 minutes away. It's just by divide there. It's a beautiful state park. Why not go and spend some time there? Slow down, be in God's creation. Rocky Mountain National Park. Do you realize people come all over the world to go to Rocky Mountain National Park? If you live in Colorado Springs and you haven't taken the two and a half hour drive to go to Rocky Mountain National Park, you're possibly too busy. And this summer, that could be a great day trip. I know where the Five Guys Burgers and Fries is on the way up there. (laughs) I'd be happy to share that with you. And enjoy that time in God's creation. It could be Palmer Park, Garden of the Gods. Get out into God's creation and be thankful. You get the idea It's us slowing down and really expressing that gratitude to God. 1 Thessalonians 5, 18 says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Continuing in verse 3, he says, Whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did. I serve with a pure conscience. Paul is able to look at his life and see that his moral compass was right with God that there was nothing that he was hiding from God and hiding from people. He was an open book. And there are times where we violate our conscience. And what do we do when we violate that moral compass? Hebrews 10, 22 says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. There's nothing like getting alone with the Lord and getting right with the Lord and having the blood of Jesus purify an evil conscience. The blood of Jesus is that powerful. But better yet, before we violate our conscience, to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit inside of us saying, don't go there, don't go there. I was reading this week uh, a book where a pastor was very transparent and he shares a time in his life where It was his 17th high school reunion. He wasn't able to go. He's a faithful in his home, faithful to his wife, to his kids, faithful as a pastor. And he receives this note from an old girlfriend saying, oh, I really missed you at the 17th reunion. You were the one person that I was looking forward to reconnecting with. And he sent her a note back and he said, oh man, it'd be great to see you too. Maybe next time that I'm home in my hometown, we could get together. So he went home for a visit, set up a time to meet this old girlfriend. He's not a fool, though. He took his wife. So his wife goes with him, or maybe he is a fool. I don't know. But his wife goes with him, and here comes this old girlfriend walking into the restaurant. And the first thing that he thought is, wow, she looks a lot better now than she did 17 years ago. And out of his mouth, without thinking, he goes, whoa, she looks good. And his wife hit him in the rib cage, right? So they have this conversation over a meal, and he thinks, that's it, I'm out of Dodge. But the whole time, his conscience is going, 
Woo, woo, woo. It's hitting him. You're in danger. You know that you're being tempted. You need to run from this situation. Got another note, and the note said, I'd like to spend more time with you, just you and I. There's some things I'd like to, to talk to you about. So he sent another note back, and he said, in a couple months, I'm going to be teaching at a marriage conference in Portland, Oregon. Maybe we could get together then. And she said, well, it just by coincidence, I'm going to be in Portland on a business trip the same weekend. Yeah, right, right? Nice little coincidence there. So he's got two months leading up to this where he knows that he's got this dinner date set with this old girlfriend. He happened to be in an accountability group with a good friend, just two guys. They called each other sparring partners as they challenged each other in the Lord. And as his conscience was going off inside of him, he told his friend, he said, I've got this dinner date set up with this lady. You know what his accountability partner told him? You're an idiot. He said, you are an absolute idiot. You're in dangerous ground. You're going to call this old girlfriend from high school right now and tell her that you're not coming to this. You're not contacting it anymore. And it was inappropriate for you to do it in the first place. Right there, that morning, give me your cell phone. You're calling her right now. And then he said, you're telling your wife by Friday or I'm telling her. And he went home and he told his wife. And that moment right there, probably saved his marriage, saved his ministry, saved his kids from a lot of heartache. His wife responded in a wonderful way, as difficult as it was. Anytime that your spouse opens up to you in a way like that, it's very difficult, but it's also good to, to stop and listen. And, and she was able to respond in forgiveness, and it built more trust in her husband that he was a man that lived with accountability. That even though he'd stepped over his conscience to some degree, he didn't step over his conscience to the full degree. That he opened up his heart to his accountability partner and ultimately to the Lord and to his wife. What good is accountability if you don't use it? You can sit in an accountability group all day long, lie through your teeth. I can lie through my teeth. We have accountability built in as husbands and wives. What good is it if we don't use it and share our, our struggles with us. I, I imagine today, this morning, that for some, your conscience is going off and it's in a certain area. Could be in financial integrity. It could be with somebody who's not your spouse. Single folks, it could be somebody that you're dating and deep down you know, I, I shouldn't be dating them. It's only leading to trouble. So many different areas, but listen to that conscience that the Lord provides. Paul also says, as without ceasing, I remember you in my prayers night and day. What an encouragement to know Paul's praying for you day and night. We have someone that's even greater than Paul praying for us, and it's Jesus. Jesus is praying for you this morning. Hebrews tells us he ever lives to make intercession for us. What a great way to live in the will of God, thankful, and in perpetual prayer. The greatest thing that we can do for others is lift them to the throne room of God. Do you believe that? That's the greatest thing that you can do for the Timothy in your life, your sons, your daughters, those that you're investing in. Even more so than instructing, teaching, exhortation, discipline, all these things that we think are going to result in a good outcome in someone's life, those all have their place. But the greatest thing that we can do for others is lift them before God's throne room. Verse four, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy. 
Paul's invested into this relationship to the point where it brings joy when he sees Timothy and there's heartache when he's not around Timothy. Do we have those kind of relationships in our lives? Are we investing to that point? Not everybody can be this close to you. Paul seems to have Timothy and Titus and that's the inner circle in, in Paul's life. But we need to have that, those close relationships that we really miss when we're not around them. Why is Timothy crying? Why does he have tears? I think it's because of the suffering that Paul is going through. And we'll see that next week as we look at the second half of chapter one. Verse five, when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that's in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. Reminds Timothy of his genuine faith, of his spiritual heritage. Timothy may be weak, Timothy may be timid, but what he does have is a real faith in God. Where did he receive that faith? As we've titled First and Second Timothy Legacy, he first received that faith from his grandmother and also from his mom. There's a couple of names that aren't mentioned there in verse five, it probably comes to mind, grandpa and dad. We know from the book of Acts that dad was a Gentile, mom was a Jew. There's no reference to dad having saving faith in Jesus Christ. This should encourage you if you have a spouse that's not a believer and you're trying to influence and raise godly children. That's the situation that we find Eunice to be in and God is faithful. God will be faithful in that situation. Maybe you're a single parent. Man, praise the Lord for you. You're here on a Sunday morning and you got your kids here by yourself. And I think single parenting has to be one of the more difficult jobs that you can do in life. It's hard enough when you got two parents and when you have two parents, you can kind of trade off and give each other breaks and that doesn't take place when you're a single mom and a single dad. And don't believe the lies. God's big enough, he's strong enough, he's powerful enough to make up the difference in your child's life. You have a genuine faith and it can be passed on just like it was passed on to Timothy. In our homes is the greatest place to impact others with Christ. It may be the hardest place to impact others with Christ, but it is the greatest place to do so. I was privileged to grow up in a Christian home and I look back and I think of the genuine faith in my parents. I remember being in church like this and watching my parents worship God and lift their hands to God and sing to God at a time when I could care less. It didn't mean anything to me, but I couldn't deny that my parents had that genuine faith in, in Christ Jesus. It impacted me to, to see them be in God's word. I remember my dad serving in our church and serving communion. And I remember the first time that I was able to serve communion here at Rocky Mountain Calvary, and it felt weird. I was like, I've seen my dad do this my whole life, and now I have an opportunity to do this. And those things impacted me. And my parents did share a lot of truth with me growing up, but to be honest, it wasn't those times of sharing truth that I really remember. It was the actions that I saw in their life. It was their own love for, for Jesus Christ that was very evident. I want to quickly read to you out of Deuteronomy 6. You don't have to turn there, but this is how God encourages us to invest in our kids and grandkids. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. 
And these words which I commanded you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Parent, it starts with you. Don't have kids and you want to impact others for Christ? It starts with you. It starts with us, that we would love God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength, that God's word would be in our heart. Then as we're spending time with others, as we're spending time with our, our children, as we rise with them, as we put them down to sleep, as we have meals with them, as we're in the house, in the minivan, as they call home from college, well into adulthood, as you log time with them, the time provides the opportunity to be able to share the truth. Middle school kid comes home struggling with relationships, you sit down and you talk with them. And that's a time to instill biblical truth into their heart and into their mind. There's a few things that are required here to pass on faith, whether it's inside your family or outside your family. It's gotta be real in you and it takes time, doesn't it? We live in a generation where we may think that impact only happens in books, in blogs, on the radio, on a stage like this. That's not the case. Nothing wrong with it, but you know what the greatest place of influence is? It's one-on-one relationship. It's the Paul and Timothy relationship. It says we log time with people, hearing what's going on in their lives and sharing truth with them. Verse six, therefore I remind you Stir up the gift of God, which is in you, through the laying on of my hands. You wouldn't really expect this verse for Timothy, would you? He's already pastoring. It seems that he's faithful, that he's fulfilling his responsibilities. But Paul writes and says, you need to stir up your gift. And we'll go on to verse 7 in a moment. It seems like fear is preventing Timothy to using his gifts to the fullest degree. God says you need to stir it up. Maybe you are using your gifts in your home, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in the church of God, but you know that it needs to be mixed up a little bit. It needs to be stirred up a little bit. Some other versions translate this fan into a flame, the gift of God, which is within you. If you've got a campfire, a a fire in a fireplace and the coals are there. Again, the ingredients are there, but you need to fan the flame. You blow on those coals, you put fuel on the fire and it begins to really start to go, really start to burn. What if you've lost that somewhere in the gifts and the calling that God has given to you? What do you do? How do you stir up those gifts? In the Old Testament, Elisha, they were building a school for the prophets, the school had grown and so they needed a bigger building. So the guys were out chopping down trees to build this school and the ax head flew off into the water. Now this ax head was borrowed, the scripture tells us. So these students were upset that they had lost this borrowed ax head. Elisha says, where did it fall? Where did you lose it? And in that we see a good indication if you've lost the cutting edge. You get it? Axe head, cutting edge. You've lost your cutting edge when it comes to the gift of God. You're really not having impact anymore. You're swinging and you're trying, but it's dull and there's no impact that's taking place. 
well, where did you lose it? Where did you lose your excitement for God's call inside of your home, inside of your job? Remember maybe that first couple weeks that you got your job and how excited you were to be there, praying that God would reach people for Jesus Christ inside of that place? Remember when you moved into your apartment, when you moved into your street and you prayed about it so hard and you said, God, we want this house to glorify you. We want to reach our neighbors. Where did it go? Go back to that place when it was vibrant and redo those first works. Also, I think, ask the Holy Spirit to pour out himself upon our lives and our gifts and our callings. This isn't something I can do on my own. So God, would you stir up those gifts inside of me? Would your Holy Spirit come within me? Verse seven, I hope you're still with me. If I can get your attention, it says, for God has not given us the spirit of fear. Church, Rocky Mountain Calvary this morning on this cold morning, if you're walking in fear, God does not want you to be in that place. Anytime that we're in a place of fear, we're not in the will of God. This is something that we're gonna all struggle with, every single one of us. I have seasons where I battle fear. If I'm not careful, I'm gonna live in an attitude and demeanor of fear instead of a place of trust in the Lord. Different things cause different people to get spun up. Maybe it's when you hear of a violent act that has taken place. If you read the news, you can't get away from it. It seems like things are getting more and more violent and fear starts to grip your soul. Malaysia Flight 370, how heartbreaking. I've thought a lot about those family members that are in this place of what's happened to my family. And maybe that's something that triggers fear inside of you and you're like, I'm not really too excited to ever get on a plane again. We've kind of had an outbreak of spider bites here at Rocky Mountain Calvary. We've had two staff members get bitten by spiders. One for sure we know was a, a black widow. Another we think was probably a, a black widow. Another guy came into church last Sunday and on his face he had all this stuff going on and he'd gotten bitten on the face. And yeah, they all happened right here at church and they've been in this section right over here. <laughs> No, none of the spider bites happened here at the church, thankfully. <laughs> but I got to tell you, when I heard about all these spider bites in like a two-week period, I went home and I was like, babe, before we get in bed, we need to shake out the sheets. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Spiders are ravenous this year. And just a little thing can get in your head. And before you know it, you're, you're in that place of fear. Sometimes it's those things. A lot of times it's stuff that it's a, a lot more core it's the fear of rejection. It's the fear of a loss of job and financial stability. It's the fear that the phone's gonna ring and the doctor's gonna say, you're terminally ill. The enemy wants us to be in that place of fear. Think of it just like you would lust and sexual sin. Hopefully you've got a guard up against lust and sexual sin. We have to have a guard against fear as well. Here's the spirit that God gives us but of power and of love and a sound mind. So God doesn't give us a spirit of fear, but he gives us the spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. All three of these things tie back to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives us power. In Acts 1.8, Jesus said, the Spirit's gonna come upon you so you shall be my witnesses. The Holy Spirit's gonna give you power so that you will be my witnesses. So we look to the Holy Spirit and we go, God, there's some material here for me to be fearful. 
but please give me your power to be able to walk in that strength. Love comes from the Holy Spirit. God's love is shed and brought in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. A sound mind, it means a moderate, sensible, self-controlled mind. For me, a lot of times, the battle with fear is won and lost in my thoughts. Would you agree? Here comes those fearful thoughts. And I can run with them, I can dwell with them, or I can take my thoughts captive and focus on the Lord. Philippians 4 verse 7 says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of a good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Use Philippians 4 7 as a filter for your thoughts. Isaiah 26 3 says, You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. So it's our mind being fixed upon Christ and then Christ keeps us in that place of perfect peace. I wanna endeavor to be practical this morning. If you're in that valley of fear, what do you do? How do you get out of a spirit of fear into a spirit of power and of love of sound mind? Three things, they all start with P. The first is the promises of God. The promises of God Get into God's word. Look what God says about himself and our relationship with him. Psalms 27 verse one says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? David's focusing on the promises of God. Also, we wanna focus on the person of God. Number two, 1 John four verse 18 says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. As we focus on who God is, God is love, that dispels our fear. My life is in his hands. It's in control of my Savior. And then the presence of God, this is the third. God many times throughout Scripture met a lot of fearful servants. Joshua 1.9, he was one of those men. Have I not commanded you, be strong and of good courage? Do not be afraid nor dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You don't have to be fearful because you're in the presence of God. Jesus said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Any dungeon, any difficulty, any hospital, any car accident, any crime, all of it, God is with us. So we don't have to live in fear. We don't have to respond in fear church this morning, we sang the great I am. Do you believe it? He's with you. And it's when we come into God's presence that the fear gets dismissed, displaced. If you're, fearing, if you're feeling fearful, or you will in the days to come, get on your knees and cry out to God. God, I know you're with me. I'm going to this valley, this place of fear, I don't want to be there anymore. And for me, the rubber meets the road with fear and trust. Am I trusting the Lord? Psalms 56 verse 11 says, in God whom I've put my trust, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? I'm trusting the Lord instead of responding in fear. We're also mixing it up as a church a little bit as we conclude this morning And our middle school students and our high school students, our high school kids meet at nine o'clock upstairs. Middle school meets while we meet throughout the weekend. 
and also our elementary age students are studying the same section of scripture with us. So if you have a middle school student this morning, as you leave, go talk with them and say, how is a fear affecting your life? I guarantee you middle school students have some fear. If you've got some elementary age students, ask them about the spirit of fear. High school students, if they're upstairs or with you here in the sanctuary, talk about it. But this is also a direction that we want to go as a church is start talking about God's word outside of the sanctuary. So here's a few questions for you to talk with your spouse, with your kids, a friend that goes to RMC. Also, if you get the email bulletin, they'll be in the email bulletin for you as well. But the first is this, who has impacted your faith? And whose faith are you impacting? That's question number one. Who's impacted your faith? And whose faith are you impacting? Here's question number two. How do you stir up God's gift within you? Maybe write that down. Meditate upon it for a second. God's given gifts to everybody. And how do you stir up that gift that God has given to you? And the third question, does the spirit of fear or God's spirit dominate your life? Does the spirit of fear dominate your life? Or does the Spirit of God dominate your life? Would you stand with me and let's pray together?